Good evening, everyone. What a delight it is to be gathered together again in the Lord's house for a second time to be able to set our hearts and minds towards the living God and to worship Him, to delight in Him, to find our joy full. Very warm welcome to all of you here tonight and any visitors. It's a special joy for us to have you with us as well. And it is our prayer that the Lord Himself would encourage your hearts and build you up by faith that you might have hope in Christ. We have gathered here tonight to worship God, and so as we come into His presence, I'd like to invite you to stand with me, please. As we come into the presence of the King of Kings, and as He Himself addresses us with the words of Psalm 16. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have set your favor upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that your grace and mercy is sufficient. And so as we gather before you tonight, we do ask that you would smile upon us, that you would look upon us and bless us and keep us, that you would grant us grace and mercy, that you would lift up your countenance upon us. We ask that you would help us to worship you, We confess that our hearts are often wayward, our thoughts are often clouded, and our devotions are often yielded to other things. And so we pray that in this time you would draw our hearts to yourself, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the blood of Christ, which is sufficient to take away all unrighteousness. And so we do pray, cleanse our consciences that we might worship you with a whole heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come, brothers and sisters, let us worship God with the words of joy has dawned.
If you have your Bibles with you tonight, we're going to be opening up through to the Old Testament, through to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. For those of you who are visitors here tonight, we've just been reading our way through the story of the Bible each Sunday evening. And we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 4, continuing with the story. We remember that Samuel has just been chosen and set aside by God. And prior to that, that the Lord had uh, uttered judgment upon the house of Eli. And we now see that coming into fruition. So it was 1 Samuel chapter 4. And this is God's holy word for you tonight. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who stuck the Egyptians, who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Israel, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. 
Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, to, and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains Came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father in law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his word to us. It's a pretty grim story, isn't it? And yet what we see here is the outcome of sinful rebellion. Eli and his sons refused to obey the Lord and to honor God in the way that God had said. And so God brought judgment upon the house, and the outcome was Ichabod. And I think it's a solemn reminder for us, because we ought not to think that we are so special that the same thing could not happen here. When we depart from God's ways, there are very serious consequences, and so let us hold fast to God's word. Live and act and worship in accordance with it that Ichabod may never be pronounced over this place. Let us come and seek his favor. Let's pray.
Do we have any children that would like to come to the front this evening? Right, put your hand up if you've been overseas before. You have? No. Yeah, that's right. But it's, it's very good. A few adults as well. You have lots of people. Once upon a time, my parents went overseas on a holiday. I felt real ripped off. I had to stay home and stay with my grandparents. I was like, what? My, good thing my grandparents are cool. So that was okay. But I got left behind. But what my parents said to me, Oprah and Omar, what they said to me was, when we come home, we'll bring presents. Like, nice, that sounds pretty good, eh? Presents. Yeah, well, everyone loves presents. And so, lo and behold, they went on their holiday. I think they went to Rarotonga or something, something real fancy like that. And off they went. And a few weeks later, after eating Brussels sprouts and overly cooked vegetables and, you know, boiled potatoes that are more like snot than potato, you know, like all that typical stuff that grandparents seem to make for some reason, and the ice cream and the chocolate and the chippies and all the rest. After doing that for like a week or two, Mum and Dad came back. They appeared. They finally appeared again. I remember being so excited. But what do you think I was most excited about? That's right, presents. So Mum and Dad turn up at my Oprah and Oma's place, grandparents' place, with this big bag. It was a huge bag. It was like this big. When I was a kid, it felt like this big. But it was probably about this big. Had a big strap. And Dad walks in with this big bag strapped on his back. And, I, and you can, well, oh. And he opens up this bag, and it's the present bag. I'm like, no. He opens up this thing, and he pulls out this amazing T-shirt. And he goes, Damien, which is my brother. Damien, this is for you. I'm like, wow, yeah. And then Justin, this is for you. Logan, this is for you. Omer, this is for you. And they just start. It was like Christmas, Santa Claus. Just throw it. No, we don't believe in Santa Claus. That's right. Parents dushing out presents everywhere. And so presents flying here, there, and everywhere. And it was so amazing. The appearance of my parents brought these incredible gifts with them. It's pretty special, eh? You know, we're looking at another appearance today, which far outstrips all the glory of the Rarotonga t-shirts and little dancing dolls and everything else that came along with it. It's the appearance of grace. We're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2. We're heading towards Christmas, aren't we? It's very fitting. We find ourselves in chapter 2 verse 11 where it says the grace of God has appeared. So we're going to be thinking about what does it mean for God's grace to appear? Does it bring presence? What does it bring with it? And what is the grace of God that's appearing? Because it's glorious. So let's pray and ask God to help us understand. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you that the appearance of God, the appearance of grace has taken place and we can celebrate it at Christmas time again. And we ask that you would set our hearts and minds to think and listen and hear and believe what you have to say. Lord, we pray that you would continue to build up the little ones in our church, that they might love you and adore you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing a couple of Christmas carols as we warm ourselves up for next week. We're going to sing O Holy Night and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And then there's some coloring pictures available for the children. Let's stand and sing. Thank you. 
can grab worksheets if you want them, otherwise you can find your seats and we're going to sing O Come, O Come, Mandrel. standing. We are going to dedicate the offering to the Lord, so let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you that you provide for our needs, that you give us breath and life, that, Lord, we have awoken to another day and another Sabbath, that, Lord, we may love you and that we might give you our offerings. And, Lord, as we bring just a small portion of what we have, we ask that you would help us to be liberal with the use of everything you've given us, our talents, our time, our money, that, Lord, we would lay everything down at the altar of Christ and use it for the praise of his glorious grace. Take this money, Lord, and use it for the upbuilding and upkeeping of the kingdom of God, your blessed church forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We are turning through to Titus this evening. Titus. If you're not sure where Titus is, go to the New Testament and skip your way through Paul's letters. Eventually, you're going to find a whole bunch of letters starting with T, and it's number five, the fifth T, Titus. It's a tiny little book. We've been working our way through the letter over the past couple of months at this point. I can't remember anymore, but probably a couple of months now. We find ourselves in chapter two, and we're picking up at verse 11. Just as a way of a reminder of where we've been and to bring up to speed those who are visiting, we journeyed our way through chapter 2 and we've seen that uh, the doctrine of God leads to godliness and that that's expressed in particular ways according to our particular states of life, whether we're male or female, whether we're slave or free, whether we are young or old. And this morning, we considered slaves and how they ought to live and the glorious doctrine of Christ that sets them free and gives them value. And now, this evening, we find ourselves in, in verse 11. And in now, 11 and 14 are sort of like the theological foundation for everything that's gone before this in chapter 2. Normally, if you're aware of Paul's writing, normally it goes the other way. Normally, he provides you with the theological framework and then tells you how to live. Here, he does the opposite. He tells Titus what to do, instructs the people of God, and then he, he follows along with a theological rich foundation to motivate and support that work. And rather than looking at the whole thing, I thought leading into Christmas, it would be wonderful for us to just think about verse 11 and lead our way into next week in the celebration of the Incarnation. So picking up at 11, we'll read to the end of the chapter. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. And before we come to consider it, let's come before him in a time of prayer. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to behold the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. Lord, who are we, sinful, fallen, corruptible, finite human beings, that you would be pleased to herald the glory of Christ through us. And we pray that you would do it. That, Lord, as I speak to human ears, you, Jesus Christ, would speak to the heart of every single one of us. That, Lord, as Paul says of the Galatians, it would be said here tonight that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And that by the preaching of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> One of the peculiar joys of being a minister of the gospel is you get to conduct weddings. Uh, most of you would have been to weddings before, maybe your own. I'm, I, well, I trust you went to your own wedding. Awkward if you didn't. Uh, but you've probably been and seen other people's weddings. And one of the peculiar highlights, I find at least for myself as a minister of the gospel, is I get one of the best seats in the whole house. You know, while you all stand off to the side and you hear the doors open at the back of the church and the music starts and the minister says, please stand and the, and the bride bursts through the doors... You're all sort of what? Standing off to the sides, looking over top of people, trying to get a glance. You get, do you know where I get to be? I get to stand right at the front. The bridegroom is even off to the side. And I'm right in the middle, staring at this amazing appearance. The last time I would have seen this uh, bride, she wasn't ready yet. My habit when I conduct weddings is to go to the couple before, on the day of the wedding before they are all ready to go and to pray with them. Sometimes they're, because of timing, they're already dressed, but often they're not. They're just in their regular clothes. And I will go in and see them and I will pray with them and they'll be in their regular outfits. But the very next time I see them, the doors burst open and in walks this incredibly beautiful woman who cares nothing whatsoever for the presence of Logan at the end of the corridor. But it's an incredible appearance, isn't it? And we've all experienced it. The doors bust open, the, the, the music goes, and everyone smiles. And, and what I always love to do is have a sneaky peek and look to the side and see the groom's face as he beams with joy as he sees the appearance of his bride. If you haven't experienced it yet, may the Lord grant you to experience it one day. But that's the type of appearance we're thinking of this evening. Not a bride, but a groom. Actually, grace. The Apostle Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. Grace appeared. 
Paul said. He doesn't say it will appear. He doesn't say it's appearing. He says the grace of God has appeared. It has happened. We are in a state of having grace. What does it mean for grace to appear? How does grace appear? I mean, it's a bit of a weird thing to say, right? I mean, what even is grace? That, that we can say grace can appear. People appear. Light appears. Your, your bread appears out of the toaster. But grace? How does grace appear? What a strange thing to say. It's helpful sometimes to, to plug these things into the story of the Bible. We remember that in the garden, in the cool of the day, someone would appear, wouldn't he? Do you remember those words of Adam and Eve? That in the cool of the day, God would walk with them. The Lord would walk with them. He would appear. But, but they fell, didn't they? And they lost that privilege. And yet throughout the history of the world, God has continued to appear. He appeared to Abraham by the trees of Mamre, made a covenant with him, established his promises with him. He appeared to Jacob, you remember, at Bethel on, on the way to Laban's land and then on the way back from Laban's land. Do you remember what Jacob said? Surely God is in this place because the Lord had appeared. Well, think about Moses. What's that strange sight up on the mountain? It's a bush that doesn't burn up. And do you know what the Lord said to Moses? Go and tell my people that the Lord our God has appeared to me. And do you remember the end of that little narrative? Before they have to make the bricks with no straw. Right at the end it says they fell down and worshipped him. Because he had appeared and has seen their misery. He appeared at Sinai, didn't he? He appeared to Gideon, O man of valor, he said. He appeared to Samson's parents. You're going to have a boy. He appeared to Samuel, to David, to Elijah. He appeared to Daniel by the river Euphrates. And over and over and over again, the Lord would appear to his people. But all of these pale in comparison to the appearance of grace. Because all of them were temporary, right? They held promises, they held glory, and they were shadows. But none of them were the real thing. All of them were to point us to a greater appearance. And it's the appearance of that which Zechariah sings. Do you remember Zechariah in the Christmas story? In Luke, in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah sings, verse 76, speaking of his son John the Baptist, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Now notice these words, whereby the sunrise shall visit us 
from on high, shall appear to us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, the appearance of grace is the appearance of a person, isn't it? You realize this is really important. Do you realize grace is not an essence? Do you realize it's not a thing? You know, a, a substance that you obtain? That, that's, how, that's how some would talk, right? I need to get some more grace in my life. I need to earn some more grace. If only I had more grace. But grace is not a thing. God doesn't have this container of grace that one day he was like pouring out to make it appear. No, grace is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of grace. He is the overflow of the heart of the Father to a fallen creation to his elect people, to those whom he loves and predestines. He sent Jesus Christ at Christmas. Love came down at Christmas, as the old carol goes, right? And its name is Grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. Not just that there's a cutesy story. Not just shepherds, but the glorious appearance of God himself. I mean, it, it doesn't shock us, does it? Because we're so familiar with it. But the infinite God put on finitude. The omnipresent God, you know, present everywhere became in flesh present in one place. And he's still present in just one place as a man while simultaneously being present everywhere as God. Let it shock you that God would become man. That grace would be embodied. But grace didn't just appear, did it? Grace appeared for a purpose. Grace appeared, we're told, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. The grace of God didn't appear so that we could have some wonderful carols, though we love carols. The grace of God didn't appear so that the shepherds at night could have a nice light show, though I'm sure whatever they saw was an incredible light show. The glory of angels singing eternal praises to the king. No, the grace of God appeared to bring salvation. You know, I think of the story I told the children with my parents. How disappointed I would have been. I mean, I love my parents. But how disappointed I would have been if they turned up with no presents. They promised they would bring presents. And throughout the ages, God had promised that he would bring salvation, hadn't he? And so 
when he appeared, he appeared with salvation. But that's easy to say, right? We, we just roll these things off our tongue. But what does it mean for the grace of God to appear bringing salvation with it? Well, John, 1 John 3, 8 would say, Jesus appeared, the Son of Man appeared for this reason, to destroy the works of the devil. What did he come to do? He came to undo everything that had been done since the Garden of Eden. The devil's goal from day dot was to de-glorify God by despoiling his creation. By despoiling his citizens. And so Jesus Christ came to defeat the devil. And to reestablish the glory of God's image bearers in Christ. He came to bring salvation. I mean, that's why he's called Jesus, right? You remember? We'll read about it on Saturday night plug for the carol service. Come and join us. But we'll read about it, won't we? You shall call him Jesus. For what? He will save his people from their sins. This is what the grace of God appearing does. There is no salvation without the grace of God. There is no salvation without the overflow of the love of the Father being poured out in His precious Son to bring about the salvation of sinners. It's glorious, isn't it? That God would put on flesh. That God would tabernacle Himself among us. In order to save you, and I mean you, like that rude way, and me, I mean just spend the next five seconds while I'm still talking, thinking about why you were worthy for God to come and save you. What have you done? To earn the incarnation of God. What, what in you is good? What in you is lovely? What in you is righteous? What in you is perfect? Nothing. And yet the grace of God appeared. This is our God. The servant king, right? He came not to be served, but to serve, to die as a ransom for many. John, the apostle John, summarizes this really beautifully in his letter. He says in 1 John, that, speaking of Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what this salvation is. Eternal life. Remember what Jesus says? Eternal life is that they might know me and the one who sent me. And John adds to it and says, and know him together as one people in blessed harmony, united in fellowship. But how is this all achieved? It's easy to say that, isn't it? But it's not, it's not just the birth. I hope you realize this. It's not just the birth of Jesus Christ that is the appearance of grace in the mind of Paul. The appearance of grace in the mind of Paul is his birth or conception, birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, glorification, and ongoing rule and reign from shore to shore. That is the appearance of grace. And all of it was completely necessary for salvation to be attained. Spurgeon says, When the Lord Jesus came to Bethlehem, and when he closed a perfect death, by, a closed life by death upon Calvary, he manifested the grace of God more gloriously than has been done by creation or providence. This is the clearest revelation of the, myth, of the everlasting mercy of the living God. In the death and resurrection of God, the appearance of grace shines brightest. Do you love Christmas, brothers and sisters? I love Christmas. I hate all the commercialized stuff. I love Christian Christmas. Oh, that we could have Christmas every week. But Christmas is dead without Easter. But with Easter, Christmas is such a joy, isn't it? Because we know Easter's coming. We march forward towards Easter. When we sing up from the grave, he arose, he arose. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ arose. What did he do? He brought salvation in his wings. Remember Malachi? Just before the closing of the Old Testament, the son of righteousness will appear, bringing healing in its wings. He came to heal all of your death all of your sorrow, all of your brokenness. And the day is coming when he will wipe away all of your tears. And we will say, where, O oh, death, is your sting? It's been defeated. No more death. Oh, how this struck me with power this week. When I went to the funeral of David Bolshan, for those of you who know him, a faithful, godly gospel minister, I wrote down in my journal that morning, 
how many more soldiers must die before death is gone. But brothers and sisters, a day is coming when it will be gone. And so we celebrate with the appearance of grace. But notice one more thing in our text. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. For all people. Now, here's an enormous difference between the appearance of the grace of God and the appearance of a bride and the appearance of my parents. My parents didn't bring presents for you guys. I'm sorry to tell you. The bride doesn't walk down the aisle for the minister. She appears for one, right? But Jesus Christ appeared bringing salvation for all. Not some. Not one. Not most. Not almost everyone. But all. What does it mean to say all? Well, you've got to remember the context, right? What have we just been through in chapter 2? Look, look at chapter 2. Don't look at me. The answer's in the book. What's in chapter 2? Old men. Old women. Young women. Young men. Slaves. And by implication, everybody. Remember, what does Paul say? Who are one in Christ? Slave and free. Scythian, Greek, Jew. Gentile, male, female, New Zealander, Australian, Kiwi, American, Brazilian. Every class, every individual, there is no one that falls outside of the realm of all. Every people, every class, salvation has come for them. This is why Jesus, Matthew 28, he doesn't say, go into some of the nations, go out to some of the people, take some of them the gospel. He doesn't say that, does he? Go into all the world, go to every nation, to every people, every tribe, and take them the gospel. Why? So that they might believe why? So that they might have life. And what do we find at the end of the book? A glorious host in chapter 7 of Revelation gathered together with just a few different types of people, right? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people praising God, willingly bowing the knee to Christ. This is why people go to American Samoa. This is why two, just over 200 years ago, people came here. So that people might find salvation in Christ. And can I just tell you here tonight, you are a part of this all. Jesus Christ appeared because you, because you are lost without him. You are dead in your sin. And due to have an eternity of hell that will never end. But the grace of God has appeared. 
You are worthy of all the wrath of God for your sin and your heinousness. But the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all peoples. And the question is, will you have it? Because here's a really important thing. If you, if you look back at our text, and as the text goes on, verse 13 says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the, notice the word, appearing of the glory, not the grace, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, there's two appearings. There is the appearing of grace, when Jesus Christ brought salvation and there is the appearing of glory when he will return to judge the living and the dead. This is the thing you must reckon with tonight. You must reckon with this tonight. There will be a day when the doors of the appearance of grace will be shut. And though you were to cry out with the pleadings of Daniel and Moses and Elijah combined, you will not be welcome. Don't put it off forever. Or it will be put off forever. Please. If I could beg you into the kingdom of God, I would do it. Please come to Christ. Cast yourself upon his grace before it's too late. He is abundant in mercy and love. Here's the glorious thing about our Lord, 1 Timothy 2. This is what he says. Hear the heart of God this Christmas. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 to 4. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Who desires, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Don't let your love for election kill the glory of these texts. He desires all to be saved. We know the secret counsels of God come into this, but he desires for all to be saved. I do not delight in the death of the wicked, God says, but rather that they should repent and live. You know, Christmas is the story of the most glorious appearance that ever took place. It reminds me of an old hymn from 1910, one of my favorite hymns actually, by a lady called Julia Johnston, and it goes like this. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. 
grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing. Hear that? You that are longing to see His face. Will you this moment receive his grace? Grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace. That is greater than even all of my sin. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a, what a glorious story it is. What a theme. Lord, though we were to preach or write or think on this for all eternity, we would never run out of words to express the matchless worth of Christ. We thank you so much for sending your Son that we might live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let us respond to God's word with the words of meekness and majesty.
as you go forth into another week, people of God, do so with God's blessing upon you. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will through Jesus Christ, to whom belong all glory and praise. Amen. Gloria Patri.